Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we're talking about debt, including student debt. Our guest, Braxton Brewington, is a spokesperson and organizer for The Debt Collective. You can see debtcollective.org. The Debt Collective is the nation's first debtors' union fighting for debt abolition and a transformation to our economy. Braxton is a North Carolina native and graduate from North Carolina A&T State University. Braxton Brewington, welcome to Talk World Radio. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, You held a virtual debtors' assembly on January 23rd. How did that go? It went wonderfully. Um, We had hundreds of student debtors and allies attend. We had a few elected officials, and we really used the time to, you know, sort of engage more in deeper structural organizing in the movement to cancel student loan debt, and in particular to pressure President Biden into canceling this debt. So typically, you know, the movement has been the Debt Collective and other organizations you know, sort of doing whatever they can on their own. We sort of took this uh, newer approach to the Debt Collective of bringing hundreds of people into the fold who want to engage in very specific organizing tactics like joining our art and design team or launching a payment, a debt strike, you know, for folks who want to refuse to uh, make payments coming up here in the next few months, for people who want to build coalitions and get labor unions and um, other, you know, coalitions involved. So this was a it was an amazing event on January 23rd, and I think that it's really going to aid in escalating our pressure to cancel student debt. So you are a growing uh, union, something like a labor union? You have dues-paying members? How, how many people? Yeah, so we're modeled after a labor union, right? This idea where individuals at the workplace who share a factory floor can collectively use the power of their labor to demand better wages, working conditions, et cetera. We believe debtors can do the same. We believe we can come together. It might be virtually right now, but we can join together and use the power of our financial debts, which we actually see as assets, to demand write-downs, cancellations, or entire transformations to our economy. So right now, the Debtors Union, which we've only just recently launched, has thousands of members, and it's growing pretty quickly of folks who both are in uh, various types of debt, medical debt, any type of household debt, medical debt, student loan debt, criminal legal debt, payday loans, and also allies, folks who say, I actually am not in debt, um, but I want to join and be a part of this movement because, you know, you don't have to, even if you don't have debt, you still have to pay for healthcare. You still have to pay for college, right? And so you are, you know, you are on the side of the 99%. And so the debtors union is modeled after the labor union. It's growing. It's the first, it's the nation's first debtors union. But, you know, one quick point that I think is interesting that we could talk about, there are other unions or other bodies that actually could think of themselves as debtors unions, right? For example, teachers unions, in a way, could make demands that include debt cancellation. So if you are, say, the Chicago Teachers Union or in New York, you could say, actually, a great way to give us a a raise in our wage is to eliminate all of our student loan debt, right? Or say the same for graduate school workers at universities. So we are a, a nation's debtors union, but we are also trying to politicize other coalitions and bodies that could also think of themselves as a debtors union as well. I imagine, sadly, it gets 
tricky because not every teacher would have the same amount, if any, of, of debt, so it wouldn't be equal benefits for all, um, but it would be a, a wonderful idea. Yeah. Um, so, so this 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 is not a spin-off that grew out of Occupy. This is something newer than that, I take it. Well, in a lot of ways it is. Um, it has The Debt Collective has its roots in Occupy. That's where our co-founders have sort of come from. We used to be known as Strike Dead, and the, the name has shifted over a bit of time, but we've now sort of come to this idea of we are actually a debtors union, right? Debt is the tie that's binding the 99%. And so that's just where we find ourselves today. And, and you, it's very interesting that you see it as an advantage, this debt, rather than, uh, you know, something that, that's, uh, that's destructive and, uh, and a disadvantage and, and a risk that people have to take if they refuse to, to pay it back, but actually a tool for changing society. That's how you see it? There's this old capitalist saying that says, if you owe the bank $100,000, the bank owns you. But if you owe the bank $100 million, you own the bank. And so we collectively look around and say, wait a minute, you have $200,000 from law school and I have $75,000 from undergrad. And actually when 12 or 12,000 of us come together, we have millions and billions of dollars worth of financial leverage, right? And so we then understand that our debts are someone else's asset, their profits for one percent or the government or for various financial institutions and there's power in that and if somebody wants to join that and become powerful rather than a debt sufferer how do they how do they join up so the the debtors union is you can go to debtcollective.com and join the debtors union we are a debtors union so you can pay a zero dollar monthly membership fee and that will uh you know allow you to be a member of the debt collective and start to reap some of the services that we provide, like helping people, um, you know, dispute certain types of debt that are eligible to be disputed. It also brings you into a fold of sort of a virtual factory floor to meet and scheme with other debtors, which we don't sort of have that luxury that workers do where they see each other every day. And um, it, you also, um, become part of the movement, right? I mean, we've been able to abolish billions of dollars of debt. Um, in the past just few years, and that's been because of the work of the debtors union. So would really encourage folks to join. And how have you done that? How have those billions of dollars of debt gone away? From a few different tactics. So one tactic is just political pressure, right? It is much more difficult to pressure a financial institution or government to eliminate a debt, but it's a bit easier when you're doing it as a group whether that's through negotiation, right? So we could actually negotiate um, if we, you know, as a debtors union, it's understood that we represent a, a demographic of debtors. Um, we could negotiate with even local governments to, to sort of you know, write down utility debts and things of that nature. And then also buying debt and abolishing it ourselves. So there's this secondary market, very shady network of buyers and sellers. And they buy and sell our debts for pennies on the dollar on this market. And so we've been able to raise funds and purchase the debt. And then rather than harass these people and uh, you know chase them down for their cash, we abolish it and send them letters and say, you don't owe this money. Um, we would also 
you know, we want you to live your dignified life, but we'd also like you to join the debt collective to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. So there's a, a variety of a few methods that we can use to uh, pressure or, or start to eliminate um, debt, but largely, you know, debt elimination is just the beginning. We really need to transform the economy so people don't go into debt in the first place. Absolutely. And you mentioned, uh, Braxton Brewington, you mentioned utilities debt as well as student debt. Uh, do you want to see all debt eliminated or, or if not, which debt and, and what's the case to be made? I know there are arguments for and against. We want the elimination of unjust debts. And that's a sort of a broad, uh, maybe even vague. I can see some listeners saying that sounds a bit vague, but, you know, we really lean on this Martin Luther King Jr. model, right? That's like you, we have a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws. And so we have an obligation to refuse to pay unjust debts if we are in a position to do so. So that's how, that's most household debt, right? We're, we're, we would like housing for all. We are fighting for college for all. We're fighting for all these public goods that actually cost money to be eliminated, but also utility, utility debt, right? Where people are billed with outrageous water bills and gas bills and electricity, um, in a, which actually ends up risking people to lose their housing. Um, but also, right, there are some debts that need to be paid, right? The um, enslavement of black people is a, is a, we need reparations. That's a debt that is owed to, to a variety of folks across the country, right? The climate crisis, there are some countries, nations, particular, particularly in the South that, you know, according to the debt collective are owed a debt, right? So there are some debts, there are some legitimate debts that should be paid, but I think right now we're using a lot of our focus to focus on the illegitimate debts. So we, what do you say to people who argue that it's unfair? I mean, I work for a group, RootsAction.org, that we push all variety of, of political issues. And I think of canceling student debt as just another good thing among hundreds. But we get a surprising amount of pushback from liberal, progressive, activist people who say it's unfair because I paid my debt or I didn't go to college so I could avoid the debt and it's just not fair to me. What do you say to those people? The, the unfortunate reality is a lot of people have been wronged by our financial capitalist system and I don't want to deny that reality. I am sorry that individuals have had to pay enormous amounts of money for housing, for a diploma, whether they were able to get it or not, or for healthcare. But that's not a reason why we shouldn't move forward and improve the lives of everyone. And that also really implies this zero-sum game where we, where we know is actually full student debt cancellation would help everyone, whether you have student debt or not. So everyone should have an invested interest in um, a boost to the economy, narrowing the racial wealth gap. And we also know if you have $50,000 worth of student loan debt and it's now gone, you now have the um, incentive to go out and start that business that you've wanted to start. You can now buy a home. And so you can now invest into your local economy, which is really going to help your neighbors, whether they have student loan debt or not. So this is in the best interest of everyone, whether you are actually indebted or not. 
Very well said. We're speaking with Braxton Brewington from the Debt Collective, debtcollective.com or .org. Uh, what do you say to people like me? I think I know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway, who, who are just sick to death of so-called raising the minimum wage over and over again, or even worse, failing to, when you could just do it once and tie it to the cost of living. If you're going to get rid of student debt, but have college cost a fortune and the debt pile up. We're going to have to come back and do it all this work all over again and abolish student debt once more some years from now. Uh, don't we have to get rid of the the cost for what ought to be a human right? You're absolutely right. Canceling student debt is the first step, right? That is what's going to get us onto a pathway to tuition-free college where people can start to rethink, okay, wait a minute, we've gone a bit off path here. We need to return to actually just a few decades ago where mostly for white individuals, mostly for white men, but college was free in the United States or a very low fee. And so in some ways we're just asking for parity here. We are just simply wanting to return back to um, a time that was actually ideal for at least one particular uh, demographic in the United States. I think what's important to remember is that we are being squeezed on both ends. We at the Debt Collective say that our bosses and our creditors in some ways are actually colluding to steal from us, right? We get underpaid at the workplace and then to make ends meet, we're forced to borrow. Then we get punished for borrowing with interest and you know capitalization and all of these other financial terms. And so we actually need a, a a combination of a debtor labor organizing strategy, right? We need higher wages in the workplace. But even if tomorrow the minimum wage went to $20 an hour, healthcare, college, housing would still be largely unaffordable, right? And so that's why we need to sort of have this dual approach where we are fighting for raising wages and making sure individuals have a livable wage, but also to transform the economy so that public goods are actually public <laughs> as opposed to being, you know, often privately funded or super expensive. Yes, indeed. Uh, so I know campaign promises are not worth a warm bucket of spit, but what did Joe Biden promise uh, campaigning for the presidency? And what did the Democratic Party platform of 2020 promise in this regard? President Biden ran on a few things. He ran on immediately canceling a minimum of $10,000 for every single student loan borrower. He said he would do that immediately. He also ran on eliminating all student debt for people who went to an HBCU or any public college and make under $125,000 a year. I would be included in that. And I have many friends who would be included in that. He also took some other steps as well. He, you know, professed he wanted to get free community college and um, possibly change some bankruptcy protections. He wanted to make it so that if you were getting your social security check garnished for student loans, that that wouldn't happen as well. There's a lot more things in the weeds, but those are some of the main, uh, you know, tactics that he ran on. And we haven't seen any of them come to fruition. And I know that people are very, very upset about that because when you say it over and over again, there's so many clips out there, you just start to think, okay, I know you've seen these clips. It's time for you to make do in your promise. 
So he promised 10,000 immediately. Here we are a year later. People have been pushing for 50,000, and he's been saying, uh, without an explanation that's clear, at least to me, that he can't do 50, but he can do 10. But then he doesn't do 10. Uh, I mean, should we expect a guy who's spent decades serving banks and credit card companies and is breaking dozens of other promises and working on focusing on stirring up wars around the world? What what would compel him to do this? We should not expect him to do this on his own. That's why we need a movement to pressure him. And so what we've seen is, in a lot of ways, Biden is actually, maybe I'm giving him a bit of credit, but he's actually a little bit more movable than Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, right? And so luckily we we now know, okay, actually Biden can cancel this debt on his own through executive action. So we actually don't need a bill. We don't need some watered down 10K, 5K, 2K for people who live in certain areas and have a last names starting in the first half of the alphabet to qualify for student loan debt. So we know that he can do all of this on his own. And the only way that we're going to be able to move him is through public pressure, right? He, We have to make this a political decision that he simply can't ignore. And I think we're definitely getting to that. I mean, the idea of turning student loan payments back on in May, just a couple of months ahead of the midterm election where Democrats are not necessarily expected to have any sort of blue wave at all, seems like at the least a bad strategy. <laughs> and uh, it's because he hasn't canceled anything, but he's put it on pause, right? And is proposing to start the payments back up again. Right, so we've played this game before. The it, payments were supposed to um, end in December, or excuse me, they were supposed to end in February. And before that, they were supposed to end in September. And we've kept moving this pause. And now we're actually two years where 95% of student loans, which are owned by the federal government, have been paused and people have literally not had to make interest, have not had to make payments or accrue interest since then. I think it just becomes really difficult to justify turning those payments back on when people step outside and say, the economy hasn't crashed, the sky hasn't fallen. I'm not quite sure why you would need to turn these payments back on. And in fact, I think a lot of people are gonna go further and say, it actually seems like you can just cancel this debt. The lights at the Department of Education are still running. I don't think you need this money. And so I think the longer that payments are paused, the easier it is to make that case. And there's just a host of reasons that are combining the case of continuing the pause at the least, whether it's the student loan servicers are not working very well. There's a bureaucratic feat of trying to just it's not just switching a button to turn payments back on. And then also we're still in a pandemic. It's just incredibly difficult to justify turning payments back on and reversing what is actually a Trump era policy, not to give him any credit, but this is a, you know, pausing payments is something that uh, President Trump, you know, initiated. And so at the least we would expect Biden to take a step to the left. Well, one would hope and demand, uh, but it's not just you saying that Biden has the authority uh, to cancel all student loan debt, right? It's numerous experts, it's Congress members in his own party saying this, right? It is a host of, of uh, voices. It's, it's really a chorus now of members of Congress, of activists, of even some officials within Biden's own administration Right now, we're waiting on this 
a very mysterious memo that we've been waiting for for over a year to, um, you know, sort of say overtly whether Biden has the authority to cancel student debt. But in a lot of ways, we actually don't need this memo, right? Because he's canceling student debt right now, just at an extremely slow pace. And so if you can pause payments, if you can pause interest, which is actually partial loan cancellation, and that's something that the Biden administration touts themselves, then you can cancel more partial loan, right? You can cancel all of the loan. So the legal authority is actually not very much up for debate at all. It's just sort of a stall tactic that I think some right-wing folks and even the Biden administration are trying to uh, settle on to sort of uh, keep the keep the keep the noise down. My my preference, as yours, I'm sure, would be for this to happen immediately, one way or another, including if it's Biden ordering it. Uh, but I would prefer for the pretense of some vestige of representative government if it were done by Congress. And I think it would last a little longer as a treaty might have lasted longer than the Iran agreement if it had gone through Congress. Uh, and you may not agree with me, but I don't think Biden has tried to move mansion or cinema on this or anything else. I don't think we've seen threats of funding primary challengers. I don't think we've seen promises of awards of, of funding for pet projects or uh, federal institutions in their states. I, I, I think when a party wants to move its members, it almost always does so. And it's not trying to move cinema and mansion. Am I, am I off base? I don't think so. It does appear that the effort to move his own party is um, inadequate at the least. But to your point on Congress, the, the thing, the great thing here is that Congress has already passed a bill. They've, Congress is who reauthorized the Higher Education Act of 1965, giving the Secretary of Education and the President the authority to eliminate this, this debt. So it's a bit um, disingenuous, actually, for you know the White House and uh, the press secretary to sort of continue to badger Congress for sending a bill when they've actually already sent the bill, right? They've given the Biden administration the authority to do this. And we also know they're not having much luck passing anything else. And so why would we assume that, you know, some uh, $10,000 or even more means-tested watered-down bill would even make it through this Congress when we can't get some of the more basic ideals done at all? So, you know, I think that's just more um, fuel that we can point to a fire of um, not actually taking this issue very seriously and really just hoping that they can sort of skate through by not taking any action until it gets to that point. I'm, I'm not trying to make your job harder. I know it's hard enough to get Biden to do something decent. I just would hate to see Biden's successor undo it if it actually happens. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Congress could, uh, if any carrots or sticks were applied at all to Mansion and Cinema, Congress could pass another bill that eliminated student debt, whether Biden wanted it to or not, and he would have to sign it or veto it, right? No, that's true. And and legislation is going to be needed at some point, especially for private student loans, which, you know, we don't believe the president actually might not have the authority to eliminate private student loans on his own. And so there is going to be some, uh, it is going to be necessary to have some level of legislation. The good thing is that once student loans are eliminated, they cannot be reinstated. And so I think there is some concern of, well, what happens if uh, a Republican president comes around in the future 
Um, once your balance hits zero, the, the, there's no authority to simply reinstate student loans um, and to give everyone back a balance that was previously had. So I think that would be a pretty unrealistic nightmare scenario, but that, that's not much of a concern for us. Right. Well, I the, the other approach that's very interesting, and maybe it's just too small to be the primary approach, but the, the, the buying debt uh, at pennies on the dollar and then forgiving it, uh, I mean, taking a bizarre, corrupt system and using it against itself uh, is just wonderful. Um, how far can that go? What percentage of the debt could it possibly take on and why hasn't wall street figured out a way to stop that um i cannot speak for wall street <laughs> what i will say is you know the debt collective has abolished over 30 million dollars worth of debt on our own just from buying and erasing debt um the thing is it's just not super sustainable right we don't have all the money in the world and we can't buy all of the debt that exists. A lot of this debt is debt that's already been to collections and that becomes a bit difficult. There's no search uh, engine, right, where I can search David and see what debt you have and be able to pinpoint it there. So it's a bit difficult. It's a bit administrative, administratively difficult to, to do. And, you know, sort of another point is that what we don't want to do is hand any more money to this very predatory industry right we there is there should be some ethics involved in saying you know do we actually want to buy this debt from some uh, it's a very lucrative industry but right from some small company or some stereotypical person in a basement that's profiting literally off of people's pain right do we even want to hand them the pennies of the dollar that come from um you know um, trying to collect on this debt. And so I think what we need is a combination of strategies where we work to eliminate people's debt and some act of solidarity and to also expose the phony morality of debt and poke these questions of who owes what to whom, but also to you know escalate our strategy and to say, we need to eliminate all of this debt, right? But instead of us trying to eliminate medical debt, we should actually be telling the IRS who has the authority to do so that they should just eliminate this debt, right? And so I think we need a combination of strategies and the only way that can happen is, is through a debtor's union that is sort of escalating that pressure. We've got just about a minute left, so this is probably too big a question, but what if everybody just refuses? What's the risk and what's the possible uh, positive outcome? So for student debt in particular, this is actually sort of a standalone question. The federal government, what we know and what we've always known and what we've definitely seen over the past couple of years is that they don't need our payments to function, right? Before the pandemic, over 55% of people were not paying a dime on their student loan debt, right? The, the government actually incentivizes not paying on their student loan debt. So that's gonna be a bit trickier and there's some ways that we can um, start to organize non-cooperation or refusal to pay with student loans. And I think that would be helpful in terms of a political campaign, but maybe that's not where our, fi our financial leverage is. Now, other debt types, that's where we really start to get into a really, really interesting question. You know, the OA housing crisis wasn't a majority of people defaulting on their mortgages. It was actually just a small number of people. And so we then begin to ask the question of, 
actually, do we only need a, a very small percentage of people to refuse to pay for that to really trip up the fee of Wall Street and other financial institutions? The same with medical debt. Are there only a small group of people who owe certain um, fines and fees to courts? And would that be enough to start to have a lot of leverage? So those are the exact right. questions that we're asking. And we, as we grow our debtors union and begin to audit the individuals who have certain amounts of debt to certain types of institutions or governments, we can start to organize those debt strikes and leverage our power. We've been speaking with Braxton Brewington from The Debt Collective. If you're listening and have any debt, go join The Debt Collective at debtcollective.com and help answer these questions and, and, and transform this society. Braxton, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk World Radio. Thank you so much for having me. This is Talk World Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talkworldradio.org. Talk World Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way.